0: Stories Jay and I are looking at on this week at FCPA include Elizabeth Holmes finally going to trial in the Theranos fraud case. What is the role of compliance in an ESG effort? We take two looks at that. Raytheon finds itself under FCPA scrutiny. Corporate Compliance Insights is surveying stress and compliance. Take the survey. Wells Fargo to craft Foods, what's the connection? Matt Kelly and I take a deep dive on compliance into the weeds, and Jay and I discuss it on This Week in FCPA. We ask, has the SFO turned the corner? We take a look at measuring compliance measurements in a very meta way. We ask our boards of directors and, more importantly, shareholders moving boards from specific risk analysis to taking a look at systemic risk. Does your board of directors need a code of conduct? Christy Grant Hart opines. And is Joe Biden the anti-corruption president? These stories, podcasts, events, Tom's book, The Compliance Handbook, second edition, all on This Week in FCPA, the 20 years after 9-11 edition. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 268 for the week ending September 10, 2021, the 20 years after 9-11 edition. This week is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. On Saturday, both Jay and I asked that you take a moment of silence to remember all those who lost their lives that day, their loved ones, and those who were impacted by those events uh, literally for the last 20 years, up to and including uh, the fall of Afghanistan and the evacuation from Kabul. So uh, a solemn day tomorrow. I hope a lot of Americans will... Reflect on where we were and where we are now and where we may be going into the future. But compliance never sleeps and it didn't sleep this week. So we
1: are here to talk about some of the top stories which caught our eye. So, uh, what say you, Jay? I say I'm wearing my black mock turtleneck, uh, turtleneck in honor of Steve Jobs and Elizabeth Holmes. So let's go to story number one.
0: So, finally, the uh, criminal trial of Elizabeth Holmes started. And I've linked to a couple of articles in the show notes, one by Allie McDevitt in Compliance Week, and the second, uh, the Wall Street Journal gave a a great summary on Thursday's edition of the opening statements made. I think everybody knows who Elizabeth Holmes is, uh, ran one of the greatest frauds in this century, and it's going to be interesting to see uh, what she claims uh, as her defense, apparently it's, uh, number one, I didn't do it. Number two, I didn't know I did if I did it. Number three, somebody made me do it. Or number four, uh, not only did I not do it, uh, my dog didn't bite you because I don't have a dog. So it's going to be a great series of defenses along the dog bite defense theory, coupled with the Sonny Balwani, he made me do it because he's a bad guy defense. So uh, her long-term paramour uh, is alleged alleged by her to be a bully. So um, lots going on here, Jay. We've explored this case multiple times from the compliance perspective, and Holmes Day in court is now here. Um, it's uh, big news everywhere. Any kind of um, buzz you're feeling in California or San Francisco? Just too far
1: away for you, Sunny Salak. Southern Californians to catch a buzz from the trial. Yeah, I think we're, our buzz is coming from whether or not we're still going to have a governor. So I think we're worried about that, and we'll let the uh, legal system take care of Ms. Holmes. So what's uh, what's the role of compliance in ESG, Jay? Uh, well, thank you for asking, Tom. We've got a couple stories, uh, one from David Povey in Compliance Week, and then another one from the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly writing for NAVEX Global's Risk and Compliance Matters blog. So why must compliance play a part in sustainability? Sustainability is as old as human in existence, but it's only recently that it's been thrust into the limelight as an international issue of concern. The, the potentially catastrophic implications of climate, climate change are among the reasons, particularly as most businesses know, their customers will not accept poor environmental practice. A recent poll of the International Compliance Association members and the wider compliance community explored the profession's appetite for expanding sustainability responsibilities. First, let's start by defining sustainability. It's commonly made up of three pillars, economy, society, and the environment. And these principles are also informally called profit, people, and planet. Each runs through every industry and business, and it's where we begin to encounter the challenge for compliance. It all comes down to one key question. Is this a job of com- the compliance team to combat these issues? It's very simple for a company to say it will be compliant and meet the targets. What's harder is to ascertain who exactly is responsible for getting this done. And we asked poll participants their thoughts, out of 828 responses, 64% said compliance must tackle the issue. Another twenty four percent said it was important but not but not a priority. The feedback reveals perhaps a perhaps surprising desire within compliance for seizing the sustainability initiative. How it does will certainly vary from country to country, determined by political importance attached to sustainability by governments and company to company. It's also evident that company compliance community is invested in this together, and it's a collective approach that will help bring about change. A final comment from the survey neatly captured the urgency sustainability is generating. These issues represent the biggest risk for humanity, but also the greatest opportunity. The sooner ethics and compliance get on board with tackling these, the better. The challenge now is discerning what compliance must do if it is to lead the way. In terms of Matt's thought, how can and should we improve diversity efforts The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission recently approved a new listing rule from the NASDAQ Stock Exchange, requiring all companies trading on NASDAQ to have at least two diverse directors, parenthetical one woman, one minority, on the board or explain why the company doesn't. Critics of the new rule like to ask how regulating the diversity of a board is supposed to help a business solve its problems. Ethics and compliance officers might want to take a different look. Look at the headlines each day, and you will see there is no shortage of corporate conduct scandals rooted in sexism, racism, or other tone-deaf corporate culture. It's an important point that often goes overlooked in debates about diversity requirements. Such rules are preventative measure meant to assure that senior executives don't become blind to bad practices in their organizational culture. When organizations put diverse perspectives in the boardroom of their C-suite, management ranks are on the shop floor, leaders are less likely to make those culturally tone-deaf decisions. Organizations have a compelling interest in taking diversity seriously, and it's including diverse voices at every rung of your organizational ladder. Frame the issue this way, and almost no leader would agree with it, because Executives want to make good decisions, but if managers, executives, and board of directors don't understand the lived-in experience of employees and customers, then, of course, their perception of the organization can drift. How big is that gap? According to one study of diversity of boards of S&P firms, 82.5% of all board directors were white in 2020 and 73.5% were men. Meanwhile, a separate analysis of Gen Z, that is the generation just entering the workforce and either working or buying from those s and 500 firms, found that only 50% 52% are white. And like every other generation, a bit more than half of Gen Z is female. One challenge is simply to define what your organization's diversity objectives are. A business could take the easy route and only do the bare minimum. A better approach is to sit with the board and senior executives and ask, what do you want to achieve with for the diversity, regulation aside? Now we have to worry about tracking and reporting on data. To a certain extent, tracking data about diversity in your workforce should not be that difficult to get because most large U.S. businesses already track a lot of this data for equal employment opportunity to commission. But the EEO-1 form requires extensive disclosures, about race and gender diversity. People leading diversity and in inclusion in office will still face two tricky questions. First, EEO1 reports aren't publicly available, so a company can disclose its EEO1 reports if it wants. And second, EEO1 reports don't track sexual orientation and soliciting information about your employees' LGBTQ status can be highly invasive. If your organization does want to demonstrate its support of the LGBTQ community and employees, you'll need to do this through honest intentions, not data. Finally, fostering speak up culture. Let's remember the original point about why diversity matters. It can help us better understand other perspectives and help management teams have an honest look into corporate culture. That's great, but it still means employees need to feel comfortable, comfortable enough to speak up about what's going amiss at their companies. That will require trust and training, especially of middle managers who might receive compliance complaints about employees' behavior It will require reporting mechanisms such as whistleblower hotlines for those employees still uncomfortable to report concerns in person. The good news is that compliance officers have plenty of training and skills in this matter, working with the board, defining objectives, building systems to collect and report data, fostering a speak-up and listen-up culture. Now that diversity is making its way onto the corporate agenda, that experience is going to be mighty useful. Tom, what do you have next?
0: So, Jay, next up, we have a report from our good friend Dylan Tokar over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, and he reports on a really interesting lawsuit which uh, was filed by uh, a a former director for Digital Sula Systems. And this director uh, claimed that he was owed certain commissions for his work at Digital Dula and that Raytheon was somehow on the hook for them. But in uh, um, information released in connection with his lawsuit, we should say, we should note his lawsuit was uh, uh, dismissed on technical or jurisdictional grounds, that he didn't have the authority to file suit on uh, behalf of Digital Sula Systems as he was no longer a director. But in it, he claimed that Digital Dula Systems was 60% owned by uh, uh, persons close to the family members of the Amir of Cater, and that Mm. the company did no actual work for Raytheon. Uh, It was simply set up as a mechanism to fund bribes to the royal family. And uh, apparently, the company was commissioned to do some reports to help Raytheon understand the market conditions, but at least according to Dylan's article, uh, forensic analysis of the report showed that they were created by Raytheon. Um, so obviously begs the question, was this a sham third-party action as a way to get money to the royal family? Um, anyway, because of the allegations brought up in the lawsuit, the uh, SEC and the Department of Justice uh, got involved and started uh, making some inquiries uh, after this lawsuit was filed. The DOJ uh, is also involved. Wilmer Cutler Pickering uh, was tapped by Raytheon to conduct an internal investigation. Um, but there, uh, other than Raytheon disclosing uh, these probes uh, by the SEC and DOJ, there's been no release of information around uh, the uh, allegations in this digital SULA lawsuit. So some really interesting allegations, a pretty sophisticated way to uh, uh, circumvent the FCPA. And uh, if you're actually creating sham reports so that you can create sham invoices, that's a level that we typically don't see, Jay. Typically, we see just the sham invoice For no work. But if it turns out that Raytheon employees were actually writing the report, that's going to move it to a level of actual knowledge, uh, at least at that level. So I think this is one we may be uh, visiting in the future, Jay, but uh, kudos to Dylan for a a great article as usual. So are you stressed?
1: Uh, Personally, I'm not stressed because I'm in a Zen like uh, state for the new year. But uh, CCI, Corporate Compliance Insights, is uh, getting ready to release a stress survey. So let me tell you about this. Compliance may be more stressful than many other occupations. It may be more stressful than the average job. Compliance officers may experience mental health issues at a higher rate, report higher instances of depression, anxiety, or burnout, and enjoy less professional fulfillment than others. But we don't know that for sure. On the other hand, some individuals and organizations view compliance to be a relatively stress-free job. Every year, CareerCast scores the stress level of different jobs by analyzing Bureau of Labor statistics for 11 different categories. The report regularly finds compliance to be among the least stressful jobs. Redditors on one thread comparing compliance to practicing law agree that the former offered a better work-life balance. Well, we really don't know just how stressful the compliance sector as a whole. That isn't why uh, CCI is launching the survey. With it, they hope to reach professionals across sectors and ask them questions like, how does your job affect your mental health? Do you have adversarial relationships at work because of your function? And do you believe that you are compensated adequately? So why is CCI doing this? CCI provides a platform and a mirror for compliance the sector, and that is a bias in and of itself. But as an independent digital publication, CCI also seeks to maintain distance between themselves and any individual or group with a vested interest. Thus, they're conducting this survey on their own and without sponsorship of any sort because they seek to provide insight to their readers while establishing a benchmark that will serve as a reference for the future stress associated with compliance what we think what we know to our knowledge just one of one effort has been made to quantify stress levels this was in 2011 by the society of corporate compliance and ethics and the healthcare compliance association they polled their members about stress and well-being and received a significant sample of over 970 responses and drew interesting conclusions. For example, 60% of the respondents reported that they had considered leaving their jobs, and 58% said they felt isolated or worked in an adversarial relationship. This survey was notable for another reason, as it's been cited by virtually every writer, journalist, and blogger who has taken up the subject of stress in the compliance field. Ten years later, we believe it's time for an update. Just like any profession, a lot can change in a decade. Besides this growth, the job has gotten riskier. If you recall back in September 2015, former Deputy Attorney General Sally Gates issued the memo entitled Individual Accountability for Corporate Wrongdoing. The DOJ guidance called for prosecutors to target individuals who are responsible for corporate crimes. Other laws like the EU's GDPR, the California Consumer Privacy Act, Corporate Transparency Act have continued to shake up the field and global trends like digital transformation, climate change, hashtag me Too, Black Lives Matter, cyber attacks, and of course our scourge right now, COVID-19, have also left an indelible mark on the compliance profession. Summing it up, taking into account a question as broad as is compliance stressful is not very useful. CCI wants to dig deeper and ask questions. What, such as what is disparity level and stress levels across the compliance field? Does stress translate into mental health issues? And what conditions maximize or minimize stress? This survey will hopefully allow for a number of insights going forward, but more importantly, it will let currently practicing compliance officers compare their own experience against those of their peers. Business leaders, furthermore, will be able to gain a better understanding of what leads to a successful, healthy compliance program.
0: And now a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back.
1: So we have our second article from the coolest guy in compliance, coupled
0: with this week's Compliance into the Weeds podcast. Jay, we take a look at the uh, Kraft Foods SEC enforcement action. This was for uh, expense uh, fraud on the corporate level, and led to a massive restatement by uh, Kraft Foods. And it really, uh, I'm not going to go into the technical aspects of, of what happened because, uh, as Matt points out in his article, and as we discussed in the podcast, what really happened was uh, Kraft Foods was sold to a private equity firm, and the private equity firm came in with uh, their big uh, uh, hatchet slash knife slash chainsaw and started cutting. And they then said to the executives of the uh, individual operating business units, uh, we need more cost savings. And you're going to be graded on cost savings. Your compensation will be based on cost savings. So guess what happens when you have uh, such a culture at the top? People come up with cost savings. How about that? You ever been in the corporate world, Jay, where they said, we want this, and you gave them that? Well, that's what happened here. Kind of reminds you of Wells Fargo. Uh, we want accounts, accounts, accounts. We want eight accounts per person. Doesn't matter if they're live or dead. Doesn't matter if they use them. You're graded on the number of accounts you open. Well, at um, and so we drew a straight line from Wells Fargo really to Kraft Foods, and it it really shows I think something that you and several of your affiliated monitors colleagues continually remind us that it's all about culture. And once culture set at the top, then that message uh, percolates down through an organization. And because of uh, the private equity owners of Kraft mandating and putting such pressure on the operating business units to cut costs, they did. And what they did was they took expense payments were due, were able to move them out uh, a series of uh, months down the road, and then um, didn't account for it properly. So it's all about the culture. It really doesn't matter how robust your internal controls are. uh, If you have a culture that says ye shall cut costs, and here you had senior business unit management overriding the internal controls, no surprise there. It's all about culture, Jay, and uh, there was a pretty um, corrupt culture at Kraft Foods that led to a massive restatement, uh, a very large fine and penalty, and it, it goes to show once again uh, the largest corporation with the best compliance program can have a rat rotten core culture and it uh, destroys the reputation of the company.
1: So has the, next the SFO turned the, the corner? corner? Okay. To answer that question. We're going to look at the FCPA blog and uh, a piece written by Martin Kenny. Uh, the serious fraud office has been teetering on the brink for some time. Several victims um, of its inept investigations have prompted some experts to question whether it remains fit for purpose. Martin has commented several times at the SFO, including criticism of the organization's head, Lee Serozovsky, for failing to grasp the SFO fundamentals and becoming too embroiled in the politics of what is effectively the UK government's anti-corruption art. One such victim of the SFO historical clumsiness was a former Serco boss named Simon Marshall, who spent eight years after being charged under a cloud of suspicion before being cleared of any wrongdoing. The case against him folded when issues generated by the failings linked to disclosure brought the trial to its knees. Mr. Marshall was quite rightly left angered and frustrated by these developments. Eight years is a ridiculous delay for such a case to reach trial. Mr. Marshall's life has been placed on hold for all those years, with its professional reputation and personal character all being called into question. The SFO was quite rightly criticized for its delay here, but also for its lack of professionalism and failing to meet its pretrial disclosure obligations. However, on a brighter note, the SFO has recently obtained two deferred prosecution agreements against unnamed UK corporations, which have admitted their part in bribery offenses amounting to multi-million pounds in value. Such cases are still comparatively rare with the SFO having secured just 10 such orders previously. The companies concerned have agreed to pay a total of $3.44 million in fines and disgorgement of profits. Both companies are reported to have fully cooperated with the investigation, and the DPAs also contain an undertaking by the parent company to support a comprehensive compliance program and obligations to report to the SFO on compliance at regular intervals during the two-year term of the DPA. In a recent statement, Lisa Ozofsky said, The SFO exists to uphold these principles, and DPAs enable us to do this, punishing companies for the crimes, but also putting in place measures which ensure that they will not flout the rule of law again. There's been a comparative dearth of SFO successes in recent times, so one can hardly criticize Mrs. Zofsky for making hay while the sun shines. However, she must keep her eye on the ball, this being but a, a short respite. The SFO needs to continue upping its game to salvage its reputation among partner law enforcement agencies. This seems to be a small step in the right direction. Tom, what do you have next?
0: So, Jay, we rarely get the opportunity to go meta on this week in FCPA. We're grounded, uh, I think, probably in the the news and commentary of the past week. But due to the uh, superior intellect of our colleague, Jeff Kaplan, we're going to get a chance to go meta because we're going to talk about measuring compliance measurement, because that's what Jeff talked about in his blog this week and Uh, I'm going to have to uh, I'm already wearing glasses, so I'm not going to go to the glasses. But uh, he talks about a new book called Measuring Compliance, the Challenges in Assessing and Understanding Interaction Between Law and Organizational Misconduct by Benjamin Van Rouge from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. And uh, he says that, quote, a major question in corporate compliance research and practice is how to establish the effectiveness of compliance programs and policies on promoting desirable outcomes. To assess such effectiveness requires proper measurement. Uh, one of the chapters in the book discusses the tradeoffs involving different types of quantitative and qualitative approaches to measuring corporate compliance and its predictors. Uh, this chapter assesses the strengths and weaknesses of different research strategies in terms of their validity in capturing behavioral responses to establish causality their precision in showing complexity their generalization generalization ability how's that for a big word and their feasibility and cost effectiveness some of the strategies include self-reported surveys randomized experiments corporate outcome data, risk analysis proxies, government audit data, aggregate outcome data, mixed methods systematic review and meta-analysis, and data simulation. So um, this is going to be, I think, a really interesting chapter and indeed entire book for compliance practitioners, uh, Jay, because uh, um, measuring effectiveness is not only one of the things the government wants to see, but really, you need to have some ability to measure the effectiveness of what you're doing. So, uh, I'm going to welcome this book. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to interview the author at some point. But uh, thanks to Jeff for uh, giving us some uh, meta views on measuring compliance measurement. So, that really leads to what I wanted to ask you, Jay uh, Is there a trend of the investment community or shareholders? really wanting to, or uh, uh, as I said, shareholders wanting to move from specific risk analysis to looking at more systemic risk from a more strategic point of view.
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that, Tom, and we have just the place to go to get an answer. This comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, and the article is from Professor John Coffey at Columbia University. He tells us that there's a new form of shareholder activism that's appeared almost out of the blue. Classic shareholder activism, which Professor Coffey calls firm-specific activism, depends on an entrepreneur, usually an activist hedge fund, who assembles 5% or greater block of stock, files a Schedule 13D that announces its plan to target the company, which might include changing management, or breaking up the company, and then profits on that block when the market responds favorably. But in this new form, systemic risk activism, the key actors are index funds and diversified asset managers, nor do they necessarily expect a positive market reaction in the short run. According to the capital asset pricing model, the goal of these investors should be to seek to reduce exposure to, quote, systemic risk, which is defined as the risk that remains in any portfolio after it is fully diversified. Today, the consensus among investment managers is that the leading systemic risk comes from climate change. Its key features are discernible in Engine Number no. 1's successful problematic proxy contacts this year against ExxonMobil. Engine Number no. 1 was a very small hedge fund that held only uh, 0.02% of the common stock from ExxonMobil. Yet it was successful because it gained support of the big three BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. Engine number one's budgeted alloc- budget allocated some $40 million to cover costs in this proxy fight. In fact, the stock market did not react well at all to number one's surprising success. Initially, it seemed indifferent, but later the stock price of ExxonMobil did rise, along with other oil companies, when the price of oil as a commodity soared. So the irony here is that engine number one made its profit only because it misjudged oil markets as its campaign called for ExxonMobil to diversify away from oil and high carbon fuels. What then is driving this form of activism? There's two hypotheses. First, there's the portfolio theory, which argues that because indexed investors own the whole market, they can profit by causing polluters and other firms imposing negative externalities on the market to internalize those externalities. A second hypothesis is that diversified investors, and particularly the big three, believe that the market is underestimating and mispricing climate change risk. If they foresee a painful and costly transition ahead, it makes sense for them to mitigate this decline by supporting proxy campaigns. This may cause the stock price of these companies to fall, but fully diversified investors own the market and are looking for the long run. As universal owners for the long term, they can tolerate present losses if it mitigates a future catastrophe. Whichever theory one prefers, the systemic change still faces a formidable obstacle. Who will run these campaigns? To be sure, the engine number one campaign showed only that a small stake is needed, again, 0.02%. But how is the leader of such a proxy value to profit uh, if the subject of such company is likely to incur at least a short-term loss? Engine number one may have lucked out when the oil prices rose, but others who follow in the stake... Will also likely need to recoup high costs. Other problems are equally complicated. How do you how do directors elected in such a systemic risk campaign take action? And is there if there's a fiduciary breach, what do they do? And worse yet, if it is it a breach of duty of loyalty on the grounds they are putting the broader interests of diversified fund portfolios ahead of their own interest? Engine number one may have found its own answer to these problems after winning its proxy fight. It shortly thereafter announced that it was launching an exchange-traded fund that would sponsor similar contests. In effect, it may capitalize on its success and use it as expensive advertising. Perhaps this could work, but remember this. Charles Lucky Lindbergh achieved worldwide fame by becoming the first to fly solo across the Atlantic. Unfortunately, no one remembers who was the second or third to do this. So, those who follow number one, engine number one, have to surmount this problem as well. Tom, back to you. So, Jay, next up, we have an article from our colleague
0: Christy Grant Hart, AKA Compliance Christy. And she wrote an interesting piece about uh, should the board have a, a code of conduct? Uh, I think a board, uh, there should be a board specific code, but uh, she said, um, what you should do is uh, pull out your code of conduct, think about everything that uh, everyone it applies to, and then see if um, you need to uh, add a few tweaks for boards, like enumerating board duties, and uh, such as promoting an ethical culture, overseeing the compliance program, participating in compliance training, uh, add uh, sections as appropriate, and present the, the board code of conduct. And I really don't can't think of a downside to doing this, Jay. Um, we've had corporations create additional codes of conduct beyond the uh, the general code of conduct, supplier code of conduct, uh, third party code of conduct. Uh, you can have a board here the board code of conduct. So the greater specificity, I think, is always uh, appropriate. And uh, once again, reminding each group person or level at the corporation of their role in compliance and ethics uh, is also a good thing. So a nice practice pointer from uh, Compliance Christy. Jay, what do you want to end up with for our uh, stories this week?
1: Our last story we're going to take a look at comes from Mike Volkov's always excellent corruption, crime and compliance blog. And uh, we're going to hear a piece from Alex Kokia, Hopefully I said that correctly who is a regulatory manager for Mike's Volkov Law Group. Scores of articles and volumes of commentary have been issued since President Joe R. Biden, Jr. issued a presidential memorandum making global anti-corruption efforts an urgent national security priority for the United States. Completely absent from most of such commentary, however, are the practical considerations for businesses, which are now faced with diverting their scarce resources to match the administration's ambitious anti-corruption efforts. A brief background. As I said, uh, signed by President Biden on June 3rd of this year, this memorandum focuses on corruption as a corrosive of public trust, distortive of global markets, and undermining the stability of democratic regimes. The memorandum notes, for instance, that the cost of corruption saps between 2 and 5% of the global GDP. More fundamentally, the memorandum states that corruption directly threatens both the national security and economic policy interests of the United States. Corruption also impedes the ability of the United States and other industrialized nations to combat poverty and promote development efforts in emerging markets. The memorandum, therefore, directs an interagency review to be spearheaded by the president's national security advisor, economic policy advisor, and domestic policy advisor included in the interagency review process to be conducted by members of the executive office of the president or key cabinet departments and officials, sub cabinet level agencies, and the office of the vice presidents. Ambitiously, the deadline for completion of this task is December 20th, 2021. Here's some practical considerations businesses across all economic sec- sectors should take note of the administration's laser-like focus on ABAC, anti-bribery and corruption issues. For organizations with established ABAC policies and procedures, the calm before the, before the proverbial storm, i.e. the formal adoption of the final report, presents an opportunity to assess the effectiveness of an organization's internal controls, update due diligence of any third-party representatives, and re-articulate the organization's commitment at the executive level to zero tolerance for briberies. For organizations that lack a formal ABAC program, of which unfortunately there are still far too many, now's a good time to act swiftly to implement implement appropriate policies, procedures, and trainings. As a start, organizations that meet this criterion should use the U.S. Department of Justice's 2020 guideline on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs as a benchmark. Ongoing risk and compliance due diligence of an organization's third parties is perhaps the most powerful weapon in an organization's ABAC arsenal. Under the revised DOJ guidelines, It's critical that a company have a thorough understanding of all third-party qualifications. They're associated with politically exposed people, PEP, and the compensation incentive structure utilized to remunerate such representatives. Finally, it seems trite but necessary to emphasize that due diligence can become stale. To that extent, organization has no policy in place to periodically reevaluate its relationships with third parties. Now is a great time to consider implementing one. As both the DOJ guidelines proposed slate of recommendations recently issued by the FDIC, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, and the Office of the Controller of the Currency, they all emphasize that due diligence is not a single event in the life of an organization, but part of a larger life cycle that requires ongoing monitoring. The long and short of the story concerning the Biden memorandum is that anti-corruption prevention and enforcement efforts are now part and parcel of the overall national security strategy of the United States. Organizations in the past accustomed to thinking of FCPA violations as a simple regulatory infraction are ill-suited for this new era of potentially heightened scrutiny and substantial monetary and other sanctions for corporate offenders. As the Biden's administration's recent actions demonstrate, the full resources of the federal government will be committed to achieve the president's objective of curbing corruption, both foreign and domestic. So, Tom, that wraps up our articles for the week. There's lots of meaty uh, podcasts we've been able to dig into. What are some of your favorites from the week? So, Jay,
0: we had uh, a great week of uh, podcasts focusing on um, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You and I participated in Everything Compliance, where we all uh, gave our reflections of where we were, what we were doing, what it means now, and and uh, some pretty somber and even melancholy shout-outs. Uh, Lisa Fine did a great podcast on her reflections of being in Washington on 9-11 and really Contrasting that with the January 6th insurrection and all of these events have personally impacted her. Uh, Last Sunday, I did a um, on the Sunday book review. I did uh, some of the top books on 9-11. So um, and that was wrapped around uh, one of my proudest moments as a podcast producer, Jay, where I did a six part series called Looking Back on 9-11, which was graciously sponsored by uh, your colleagues at Affiliated Monitors. Um, I visited with a variety of compliance professionals who talked about their experiences. I didn't realize that three of them had been in Manhattan on that date. Uh, two had been in Washington on that date. And a, uh, a final uh, third uh, went to war. Uh, so it was a, a very emotional series for me. Uh, took me back to uh, a time and place literally 20 years ago. I still can't believe it was 20 uh, 20 years ago um, that we celebrated. So I hope people will listen to this podcast series. Um, on Thursday, the lineup was Monday, Gabe Hidalgo. Um, Tuesday, uh, Juan Serrate. Thursday, uh, Alexander Dill. Thir- uh, Wednesday was Alexander Dill. Thursday was your colleague, Eric Feldman, um, who was uh, actually in the CIA um, director's briefing when the first plane hit the tower. Scott Moritz was one of the people on Manh- in Manhattan was with the FBI at the time. And uh, Saturday, Jay, I end with someone who's not really from the compliance world. He's a podcaster extraordinaire named John Lee Dumas. He has a podcast called Entrepreneurs on Fire, which is hugely popular. John was a college senior on 9-11, and he uh, was an ROTC. And he said when the second plane hit the tower, he knew he was going to war. He didn't know where and he didn't know against who, but he knew the days of the peacetime army were over. And as he reflected back in that podcast, and we've been at war for 20 years. So young men like I, he was 21. He went to war. So um, it's a pretty moving
1: series uh, for me. Uh, We've got a couple of events listed, Jay. What do we have kind of on the events side of things? Sure. So this is also in the spirit of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Please join K2 Integrity on September 15th for a roundtable on the 20th anniversary of September 11th to consider its impact on countering terrorism financing and illicit financing and the continuing risks to national security. This roundtable will include members of the team that spearheaded the post-9-11 counter-illicit finance regime, Juan Zorate, Chip Ponce, Danny McGlynn, moderated by Dr. Michelle Malvesti. And as always, we have information and a sign-up link on the show notes. And Ethosphere has announced that its World's Most Ethical Company Awards for 2022 are open for submission. For more information on the application process, again, please check into the show notes. And Tom, um, what about the last item we have here? So let me just pick up on your last point, Jay. Last
0: week, I uh, posted a uh, podcast uh, featuring two Ethisphere uh, representatives, Erica Salman byrne and Doug Allen. And we talked about uh, not only the uh, w- uh, world's most ethical awards, but also the application process. And I'd like to throw in a word about why the application process can be so powerful for you, the compliance professional, or you, the CCO, it gives you an opportunity to take a deep dive look at your compliance program. Uh, Even if you don't receive the award, it can be a very valuable exercise to go through. If you do go through the process and submit your application, you receive a benchmark report back from Ethisphere and um, also uh, complimentary membership in their uh, bailout program. So, it's uh it's something that I think you should consider doing uh as well. And Jay, uh, if you didn't know Jay, I, I I did a thing, and that thing was had a book published, and the Compliance Handbook, second edition, humbly submitted as the single best bible on compliance there is, uh, was released in June by LexisNexis. Uh, I had a great uh, coming out party for my Brazilian friends uh, last week, Jay. Um, was hosted by Isabel Franco, Azavete Asete Law Firm, uh, and Charles River Consulting Group, where I did uh, a coming out party for the book in Brazil, and that was a ton of fun. So um, we've linked to uh, the uh, the book itself, but even more so, Jay, uh, there's a breaking news feature on uh, the book that I've linked to as well, uh, starring uh, one of the stars. Of course, quoted was uh, that well-known compliance aficionado, Paris Fox, uh, who has her own reasons why uh, you should buy her dad's book. So check out uh, breaking news feature on the compliance handbook. And, uh, you know, as Paris said, i my dad's handbook, so i go to grad school. Jay, I wanted to ask you, uh, this is a pretty important week in the Jewish faith. And I wondered if you might end with a few words about what this week was what it meant to the Rosen family and what
1: it, it meant to Jay Rosen personally. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, at, at this time of the year, I don't think it's coincidental that uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, and it kind of follows, uh, falls right around nine eleven. And I think uh, one of the things that uh, Jew, Jews are encouraged to do is to kind of Look at their life over the past year, what they've done well, what they could do better, what they didn't maybe do so well. And then you have a 10-day period uh, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur for when you can make uh, all vows to what you can do in the new year. So this is a time that's not only reflective, but a time of family being together. And it feels like we as a compliance community have been doing some of these this work that you do over Rosh Hashanah. And Tom, you've especially uh, led some of this with the six-part series that you've uh, that you recorded of the podcast, and especially what we did on everything compliance. So, um, from our family to all of those out you in podcast land, we'd like to wish you a happy and healthy new year. And as we say, uh, may you be inscribed in the book of life. And it's not too late. So, if there are changes that you want to make, or hey, you want to start doing third party due diligence. It's not too late to start doing that. In fact, you could start off the new year. So in all seriousness, again, um, it's great to be surrounded by family and friends. Uh, Sometimes this is virtual, sometimes it's in person, but it was meaningful to spend the holiday with family. And, um, you know, those are my thoughts. Do you have any thoughts, Tom? Tom?
0: So, uh, so, Jay, more than, uh, than perhaps the new year, I have um, studied and done a little research into Yom Kippur, and I find that to be a, a very moving experience. Um, and it's something that uh, I think everyone should consider doing, um, whatever your spiritual faith may or may not be, uh, agnostic, atheist, or Buddhist, Hindu. Jew, Christian, Muslim, um, uh, to think about what you could have done better, and maybe think about doing it better in the new year. And and uh, I really had not put together, I don't know why, the connection of those two days in this week. So thanks for bringing bringing that to my attention. And then frankly, I can't think of a time more appropriate for every American to reflect. Um, whether you were alive on 9-11 or whether you were born after 9-11. Uh, it's been 20 years of, of conflict and a lot of strife in this country as well, and we have to do better. So maybe if we all tried to do a little bit better, uh, we could move forward. And and I think wrapping that around these holidays, whatever your faith is, is, is certainly an appropriate thing to do this week, Jake.
1: Well, as you know, Tom Fox is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached directly at tfox, at tfoxlaw.com. And as always, I'm your co-host, Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. and I can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, Episode 268 for the week ending September 10th, 2020. 20 years after 9-11 edition. Tom and I would like to thank you for spending part of your week or weekend with us, and we look forward to speaking to you next week when we will take a look at This Week in FCPA. This is
0: Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you will check out my six-part podcast series, Looking Back on 9-11, which is on the innovation and compliance feed of the Compliance Podcast Network. It's my most personal podcast series, and I hope you find it a good way to reflect about 20 years after 9-11. Please plan to join Jay and I next week when we take a look at stories that caught our eye. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, Jay at jayrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.